Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Voters across five states have selected their nominees for the midterm elections. Several Trump endorsements put to the test. President Biden signs another executive order defending abortion access. This one's about out-of-state travel. InfoWars host Alex Jones confronted at his Sandy Hook defamation trial. What plaintiff's attorneys asked him and his response. Pinning down the origin of the pandemic, that's what a hearing today was seeking to do. The focus? Gain-of-function research. The American people deserve to know how this pandemic started and to know if the NIH funded research that may have caused this pandemic. The number of people who have quit the Chinese Communist Party has reached another milestone. Many decide to quit after learning of the regime's atrocities. They say they'll let her go if she deny God. Uh, she refused. Hall of Fame broadcaster Vin Scully passes away at age 94. The best baseball historian tells us what made him so great. Republican Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was killed in a car crash this afternoon. She was 58 years old and had represented Indiana's 2nd Congressional District since 2013. The SUV she was traveling in collided head-on with a car on a highway in Elkhart County, Indiana. Two of her aides were also killed. Local authorities are currently investigating the crash. And in election news, Trump-backed candidates won primary races in a handful of states as voters in five states have narrowed down their party's nominees for governor, House and Senate. And in Kansas, an abortion vote is sparking national attention. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. Unexpected results came out of the red state of Kansas with abortion access on the ballot. The majority of voters in the state say no to giving their state lawmakers the ability to restrict or ban abortions. The vote was the first of its kind in the nation since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Pro-abortion supporters are hopeful that it indicates a trend. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer used floor time today to express his prediction that this hints Democrats have a chance of keeping their majority in Congress this November. What happened in Red Kansas last night is a reflection of what is happening across the country and what will continue to occur through the November elections. As for other election results, Senator Roy Blunt is leaving Congress and Eric Schmidt is the projected GOP nominee seeking to replace him. You guys ready to take this country back? Schmidt is currently Missouri's attorney general. In November, he'll face Trudy Valentine, the Democrat primary winner. And former President Trump's endorsement was once again put to the test in a few states. To take on Michigan's Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer, GOP voters in the state have chosen Trump-backed candidate Tudor Dixon. I've talked about this at length, about the 2020 election. It was unlike any election we'd ever seen, obviously, because of the pandemic. Another win for the America First movement in Michigan's 3rd Congressional District. Congressman Peter Meyer, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, will lose his House seat this November. John Gibbs, the GOP nominee, will now face Democrat opponent Hillary Shulton. But two other Republicans who defied Trump with an impeachment vote won their primaries in Washington, Representatives Dan Newhouse and Jamie Butler. And in Arizona, Trump-backed Carrie Lake is narrowly leading her opponent Karen Robeson, who is backed by Mike Pence. And for the state's Senate race, Blake Masters won the nomination to take on Democrat Senator Mark Kelly. Arizona is the most important state to look at from last night's primary results. This is one of the few swing states where Republicans have a chance of flipping the Senate seat and taking back the majority come November. But based on last night's primary results, current Democrat Senator Mark Kelly had about 200,000 more voters turn up to the polls to vote for him versus his now opponent, Trump-backed candidate Blake Masters. So in order for Republicans to flip that Senate seat, hundreds of thousands of more Republicans will have to show up to the polls come November. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. President Biden today signed another executive order to support travel for abortions. This comes in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Secretary Becerra is going to work with states through the Medicaid to allow them to provide The president said the order will help women travel out of state to receive medical care. He also said it streamlines the collection of key maternal health data.
Biden signed the order virtually as he's remaining in isolation because of the CCP virus. This comes one day after the Department of Justice announced a lawsuit against the state of Idaho over abortion rights, and Kansas yesterday voted to reject an abortion ban. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi left Taiwan today. During her visit, she lauded Taiwan's democracy and pledged American solidarity. But the Chinese Communist Party thinks the self-ruled island belongs to it. So Beijing demonstrated its anger over the visit with a burst of military activity, some of which was planned to take place within Taiwan's sea and air territory. To learn more about the implications of Pelosi's visit and Beijing's reaction, I spoke with Grant Newsham, a retired Marine colonel and senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Grant Newsham, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Now, the Chinese Communist Party is ramping up its large-scale military drills around Taiwan. That's after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan yesterday. What's happening here? Is the CCP just flexing its muscles? Why is that happening? Well, it is flexing its muscles, but it's also flexing its muscles in a way that is unprecedented in a way. Uh, it's effectively established a sort of a blockade uh, that surrounds Taiwan. Uh, it's declared certain parts of the ocean off limits, uh, saying that there's going to be live fire military exercises going on. You look at where these are, they uh, are around the, they cover the entire island, uh, every side. Um, and also, if you look up north, they actually sandwich uh, a small Japanese island or two uh, down at the southern end of the Ryukyu chain. And a couple of these are well within Japan's exclusive economic zone. Uh, and the Chinese have announced that what they're going to do, they've announced that this is basically um, a sort of a blockade or practice for a blockade or practice for supposed reunification uh, of Taiwan. Uh, they've had this in mind for a long time. They're using uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi's visit really as a sort of a manufactured provocation. Uh, but this has been where the Chinese have been headed for quite a while. Uh, so nobody should really be all that surprised by it. Uh, but I would stress that this is something we haven't seen before. Uh, but it's, it's not all that surprising. And Pelosi has said that the U.S. will maintain the status quo when it comes to its policies on Taiwan. Do you think this is about quieting the CCP's anger, or does it serve another purpose? Oh, I don't think it's really possible to quiet the, the Chinese Communist Party's anger. Uh, they're perpetually aggrieved, uh, like a drunk in a South Boston bar at 1 a.m., talking themselves into a fight. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, to her credit, has spoken in a straightforward manner and quite clearly about a free and democratic Taiwan and the importance of America uh, looking after it, protecting it. Um, and that is important in its own right. But of course, she's just one person. She's maybe out of office in two months or so, or out of position. And it really is the entire U.S. administration that needs to get its act together towards Taiwan uh, and towards China in particular. And the Americans are showing they're a little bit confused, actually, about what their policy is. Different people say different things. And the Chinese might rightly think, well, China knows what its policy is. It looks like the Americans are split. And China has been able to get some of its uh, proxies, its so-called China hands, China experts, um, to, over the last two weeks, just insist that America should do nothing to provoke China, that Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan is, a, is just reckless. It's a provocation. So China kind of looks, you know, it's may not mind what it sees. Uh, the Chinese have not gone after the Americans, you will notice directly. Uh, but you knew that once Secretary or Speaker of the House Pelosi uh, was gone, you knew that the Chinese would lean on Taiwan pretty heavily. And you'll see that now they've put the Americans in a position where the Americans have to decide what they are going to do. Uh, China has effectively called their bluff, and we'll see. Uh, but it's um, really has not been the most impressive uh, diplomacy, statesmanship, or stewardship of foreign policy that one has seen from an American administration uh, in history. This is actually supposed to be the adults who were back in control, back in power, and it doesn't look like it. It looks a bit like amateur hour. And you've said before that you believe the U.S. would defend Taiwan in the case of an attack. What do you think the U.S. should do, if anything, to ensure that China knows they mean business? 
Well, America's still got a pretty impressive military and could probably, at least for now, sink the entire Chinese Navy if it needed to. Uh, America needs to get its military house in order. Uh, it needs to bulk up its uh, Navy, get its Air Force in, in order as well. But also it needs to get these uh, the right long-range weapons, that just in case you need them. As I said, you could sink the entire Chinese Navy. So you've got to get the military part right. But also this should not be just a sort of a tit-for-tat, more a direct um, challenge to Chinese military uh, activities. But also America should use its financial levers, financial clout, uh, particularly uh, choke off the supply of foreign exchange of U.S. dollars to China. Uh, let them try to pay for things in Chinese money. Uh, nobody wants it. Uh, that's one area that you asymmetrically apply pressure. Uh, additionally, start exposing Chinese leaders' corruption. You know, expose their uh, real estate holdings in the United States, in Canada, uh, their bank accounts as well. And make sure everybody on Earth knows this. Make sure all 1.4 Chinese know this. Uh, that is something that terrifies Chinese leadership as well. But from economic, financial, and even a, a propaganda perspective, um, the nature of the Chinese regime and its human rights atrocities, uh, black prisons, organ harvesting, these are some things which should be trumpeted to high heaven. If America ever learns what uh, strategic communications, political warfare propaganda is, uh, that it can be very effective on this front as well. Um, so, and also, you might give Taiwan a free trade agreement and maybe actually start doing some joint exercises between the, our military and theirs, get the Japanese and the Australians in on it as well. So there's a number of things you can do, but it's good not to focus only on the Taiwan Strait or on the military. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, has pleaded not guilty to driving under the influence. He was involved in a car crash in Napa County, California in May. Paul Pelosi faces misdemeanor charges for driving under the influence of alcohol and causing injury. His car was hit by a Jeep on the night of May 28th, and the driver of the Jeep suffered injuries. Paul Pelosi was arrested and then later released on a $5,000 bail. He did not appear in court in person today. Instead, his attorney entered not guilty pleas for him. If convicted, Paul Pelosi could face a minimum of five days in prison and up to five years of probation. He could also be required to install an ignition interlock in his car and take a drinking driver class. And now to the Sandy Hook shooting. InfoWars host Alex Jones and parents of the shooting's victims continue to testify in Jones's defamation trial. The jury will have to decide by the end of the trial what damages Jones has to pay the parents. Here are the details. The defamation trial of InfoWars host Alex Jones entered day seven on Wednesday. The plaintiff's attorney confronted Jones about his past statement that the Sandy Hook school shooting was staged and no one died. Do you understand now that it was absolutely irresponsible of you to do that? It was, especially since I've met the parents and uh, it's 100% it's, it's real as I said on the radio yesterday and as I said here yesterday, uh, it's 100% real. And the media still ran with lies that I was saying it wasn't real on air yesterday. It's incredible. They won't let me take it back. They just want to keep me in the position of being the Sandy Hook man. The judge in Austin, Texas, ruled that Jones must pay damages to Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, the parents of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, who was killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012. The mother confronted Jones during the trial on Tuesday. I wanted to tell you to your face because I wanted you to know that I am a mother first and foremost and I know that you're a father and my son existed. You're still on your show today trying to say that I'm uh, implying that I'm an actress, that I'm deep state. You have this week. and. I don't understand. The mother says Jones's supporters have been harassing her family because of Jones's claims about them and about Sandy Hook. The parents have asked for at least $150 million in damages from Jones. Jones says he doesn't believe they are actors and told the parents on Tuesday that he never intentionally tried to hurt them. This is the first among several defamation lawsuits filed against Jones over his claims about Sandy Hook. 
Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Renewing efforts to pin down the origins of the pandemic, Senator Rand Paul leads the first congressional hearing on gain-of-function research. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Gain-of-function research has the potential to unleash a global pandemic that threatens the lives of millions. Yet this is the first time the issue has been discussed in a congressional committee. Revisiting the issue of how COVID-19 originated, Republican Senator Rand Paul leading the first ever hearing on gain-of-function research, which involves altering viruses to make them more transmissible. The American people deserve to know how this pandemic started and to know if the NIH funded research that may have caused this pandemic. The hearing comes amid intensifying Republican scrutiny on whether a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, or WIV, caused the pandemic. The State Department has flagged circumstantial evidence of WIV's gain-of-function research on bad coronaviruses. And here's Dr. Stephen Kui with Atasa Therapeutics testifying today. There is no dispositive evidence the pandemic began as a spillover of a natural virus in a market. All evidence is consistent with a laboratory-acquired infection. I do understand this conclusion is not widely held. And an MIT professor raising national security concerns. We are so used to thinking of pandemics as a health and safety issue that we've missed the national security implications of identifying viruses that could be deliberately unleashed to kill millions of people. But another major concern focuses on whether the National Institutes of Health funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan facility, an allegation that NIH leadership had denied. The NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute Do they fund of Dr. Barrick? The molecular biologist Dr. Richard E. Bright accuses Dr. Anthony Fauci of lying about NIH's funding ties. The statements made on repeated occasions to the public, to the press, and to policymakers uh, by the NIA director, uh, Dr. Fauci, have been untruthful. I do not understand why those statements are being made because they are demonstrably false. And experts, while urging more U.S. oversight on such research and on the funding that goes with it, also call for more attention on China's behaviors. Are you concerned with the continuation and expansion of Chinese gain-of-function research? They were doing synthetic biology on a cloning vector of the Nipah virus, which is 60 percent lethal. We just experienced a 1 percent lethal virus. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And a new milestone for a grassroots organization that's helping people quit the Chinese Communist Party. At a rally today, the organization announced that the number of people who've quit the CCP has reached 400 million. NTD's Jason Perry was there. I'm here in Queens, New York at a rally, and they're celebrating reaching the milestone of 400 million people who have quit the Chinese Communist Party. To put that in perspective, that's about 70 more million people than the population of the United States. Now this number includes the Chinese Communist Youth League and the Young Pioneers, which almost all school-aged children are forced to join. The movement to quit the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, began in 2004 after the Epic Times published the nine commentaries on the Communist Party. It details the dark history of the CCP, including the Tiananmen Square massacre and the persecution of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, a spiritual practice based on truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. The organization is called the Global Service Center for Quitting the Chinese Communist Party. Millions of people have visited the website to disavow their affiliation to the CCP after learning of its atrocities and the tens of millions of people killed under its rule. Elmer Yuen, an activist and political commentator, shared how his family was affected by the CCP. Uh, my mother is a Jehovah Witness, and uh, she went to a work camp, basically the same as a working prison for 20 years. They say they'll let her go if she deny God. Uh, she refused. That's why she stayed for the whole term. A local official also shared her thoughts. People need freedom from being hurt, from just being controlled. I mean, everybody should live a good life. And having 400 million people behind you speaks for itself. 
The president of the organization explained that some people quit the party using pseudonyms for safety reasons and that the organization has a large team of auditors working 24 hours per day to audit the names of people who quit the CCP. I hope more Chinese people will quit the CCP and a peaceful and free China will come up. Many people have made the distinction that the CCP is not China and that the Chinese people will be free after the communist regime falls. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. And now to the topic of gender. One of the world's most influential style books, often referred to as the Bible of Journalism, recently started advising against quoting people who use the word groomer to describe those who teach children about transgenderism, homosexuality, and other mature sexual issues. The guidance is part of a lengthy transgenderism update by the Associated Press, whose content is also used by more than 1,000 newspapers and broadcasters, often without citation. Earlier today, I spoke with James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, for his analysis. So what do you think about the AP's new policy on the term groomer? Well, the AP has this new policy, Twitter has a policy, Reddit has a policy. I think they're expanding the policy further and further. I think I saw somewhere else it's adopting the policy as well to ban the word groomer under the pretext that it is a slur against LGBT people. Um, and that, of course, is not something anybody's making an accusation about, uh, except the people trying to ban the term and then using that pretext. Nobody in their right mind is accusing all gays and lesbians and bisexuals in particular and most trans people of being groomers of children into an ideology or into sexual behavior. Most people have uh, clear eyes on this issue. They're not thinking that that's what's going on. They recognize that most gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and even trans people are against the idea of grooming children and they mostly just want to live their lives through whatever their circumstances are unperturbed. But for some reason, these entities want to ban the word and use uh, these gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and trans as human shields, uh, thus insinuating that they, in fact, might actually be all groomers, which is on them. But the, what do I think of the policy? I think the policy is an admission that they can't hide from the fact of what's occurring, which is widespread ideological grooming into gender, sex, and sexuality type ideologies, uh, generally what I call queer Marxism, based in what they call queer theory in the academic literature. Um, you only ban a word when it's sticking, and they are, in, the, in my opinion, confessing that it is identifying something that's occurring that they want to have continue to occur and that they don't want people to be able to identify. So I think that they're um, waving the guilty flag by attempting to ban the term as a form of hate speech because the overwhelming proportion of people using it or not using it as hate speech, they're more than content to watch uh, lesbians, gays, bisexuals and trans people live out their lives however they wish, so long as they don't bring children into sex, gender, and sexuality topics that are inappropriate for their age or inappropriate for, uh, you know, the, the childhood development circumstances that they're in or the fact that it violates the rights of other parents who don't want their children to have to confront these topics when they're being confronted. So um, it's, it's a guilty admission, on, in my opinion, that they're trying to ban the word. It's like censorship is the second to last barrier when, they, when they've lost control of a narrative. The AP now tells journalists that saying someone identifies as a woman is often less to the point than saying John Doe is a woman. And it also warns against misgendering people. Uh, how do you think these changes could impact journalism in the future and the public opinion more broadly? Well, I mean, it cuts two ways. So on the one hand, what they're forcing people to do is obvious baloney. And so what it forces journalists to do and what it will, the impact it would have on journalism is it's forced journalists to become propagandists. It forces journalists to write stories or publish stories or editors to change stories to not reflect reality, but reflect the ideology. To say somebody identifies as a woman is already to admit that they're engaging in something that doesn't match their biological sex, and it's something where there should have been more robust debate, and this is something we should be concerned about. Why is somebody identifying as a woman? Uh, what's happening? But to say that they are a woman is just patently confusing. John Doe is a woman. I mean, John 
I guess could be a, a name somebody gives to a woman, but that's not something that's very common. We would identify that typically with men and then uh, is a woman. So what it's going to force people to do is write more and more confusing stories that are less and less able to cut through to the truth in order to serve an ideology and protect an ideology that is ultimately delusional and harmful. And this is a major problem. Uh, the other side of the effect that it'll have on journalism is it will therefore discredit journalism further. People will become less trusting of outlets that are pulling this. This is the fundamental conceit and error that leftists and Marxists have made all throughout history, is they actually think that they can seize control of a narrative and then use linguistic manipulations and that what will happen is that people will just go along with them. For example, change the definition of a woman, change the definition of a recession, change the definition of a vaccine, change the definition of immune. Let's change the definition and just run with it. And they think what that will do is that well, people will just go along with the new definition. And what happens in fact is it hollows out trust in the institution that pulled the stunt. So what will happen primarily is that journalism will become even less respectable and outlets that are forced to conform to this are just gonna tumble into a lack of trust, a lack of respectability, and that does more damage because it, be, it enters into that kind of Soviet state of demoralization where you can't tell what's true, you don't know who to trust, and kind of it just dissolves the benefits of a high-trust society uh, that we all kind of depend upon to have good and free lives in societies like we have in the West. And finally, you've said that some aspects of woke culture actually aim to break down the innocence of children. Could you flesh that out a little? I mean, this isn't even like I don't have to flesh it. There's nothing to flesh out. Go read their papers. And if you go into the queer theory papers, so queer theory, queer Marxism, whichever thing you want to call it, they call it queer theory. If you go into the queer theory papers where it intersects with education, so queer theory and education papers, just go to Google Scholar and type in queer theory education. See what you get. Innocence of children, innocence of children, innocence of children comes up over and over and over and over again. They have decided that the innocence of children or childhood innocence is actually a narrative constructed by people who are fortunate enough not to be queer or LGBTQ or whatever label they want to stick on it, and that they use that to protect children um, illegitimately from having run into queer narratives, queer ideas, and thus to kind of, frankly, groom children into believing in heteronormativity or so-called cis-normativity or their combination of cis-heteronormativity, that people are generally uh, the, the sex and gender match and that they are generally, statistically speaking, heterosexual. And that's normal for people to be. They think that there is actually a process of grooming and that the ideological narrative that children are to be are innocent and are, that their innocence is to be maintained as such is part and parcel of how that reproduces itself and thus harms people, particularly LGBT people in society. And so what can be done about this? I mean, we have to draw a hard line. Enough is enough. And in fact, enough was enough a while ago. And we're going to have to draw a hard line and say no further. You're not going to sexualize our children. We're going to pass laws that if they were, they don't exist to prevent you from doing so. We're going to enforce laws that do exist about obscenity or, for example, with some of the library books and the curricular books that they're showing in schools. Um, exposure. I think a suite of states here in the United States are going to be passing drag queen laws to protect children from adult sexualized performances. And those laws are going to have to be passed, they're going to have to be enforced, and these people are going to have to be removed from the positions of power they're abusing. People will have to lose their jobs. Teachers that are doing this, administrators who are doing this need to lose their jobs at the least. Maybe they need to go to prison. Sexualizing children is not something that a society should tolerate or play with. So what's to be done with it is we draw a line, we say no more, and we start making consequences for people who violate that going forward um, so that it stops and that we protect our children. Thank you so much. James Lindsay from New Discourses, thank you for your time. Well, thank you. To watch my full interview with James Lindsay, you can visit ntd.com tomorrow. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, a furniture rental company Rent-A-Center is set to pay millions back to California consumers. The state's attorney general said the company allegedly overcharged for its leases. And Hall of Fame broadcaster Vin Scully passes away at age 94. A baseball historian tells us what made him so great. Stay tuned for more after the break.
welcome back. A sweeping bipartisan vote, something that most Republicans and Democrats could agree on. The PACT Act to help veterans with health care passed in the Senate in an 86 to 11 vote. Until the mid-2010s, the U.S. military used burn pits to dispose of waste on foreign bases, including in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The bill is expected to dole out $280 billion in benefits over the next decade to veterans injured by toxic exposure from the pits during military service. President Biden is set to sign the bill into law on Monday, August 8th. And in a near-unanimous vote today, the U.S. Senate passed a resolution approving Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO. The anticipated expansion of the Western Military Alliance comes after Russia invaded Ukraine. Republican Senator Josh Hawley was the only lawmaker who voted against it, saying it distracts from the real global threat, the Chinese Communist Party. NATO's 30 allies signed what's called an accession protocol for Finland and Sweden. The two countries are allowed to join the alliance once governments from all 30 members ratify the decision. This would be the most significant expansion of the alliance since the 1990s. And Rent-A-Center is set to pay millions back to Californians. The large furniture and electronics rental company is settling charges for allegedly making customers overpay to rent or purchase products. Tens of thousands of Californians who entered into a preferred lease agreement and rented merchandise with a Rent-A-Center kiosk are eligible to receive restitution or payments. On Tuesday, California Attorney General Rob Bonta announced a settlement with the company. Today, I'm announcing a $15.5 million judgment, including over $13 million in restitution. That's money that will go back into the pockets of consumers against Rent-A-Center, one of the largest rent-to-own companies in the nation. Bonta said since 2014, the company overcharged preferred lease customers with a cash price that was 15% higher than retail. Furnishing a home is expensive, we know that, and consumers often hope these rent-to-own agreements will lessen the cost, not realizing the total price they pay will end up being much higher. The Attorney General's office said this was based on an investigation into its kiosks inside retail stores. And beyond these extra costs, we allege that Rent-A-Center also misled consumers about the most fundamental aspects of their preferred lease, products, uh, of their preferred lease products, such as the right to return merchandise at any time with no penalty. The company did not admit wrongdoing in the settlement. According to its annual report, the company had over 2,400 stores in the United States, Puerto Rico, and Mexico at the end of 2021. The rent-to-own industry consists of dealers that rent household goods, such as furniture and appliances, at extremely high prices to low- or moderate-income consumers. Los Angeles supervisors recently voted to put an ordinance on the ballot that would give them greater power. The measure is asking voters to decide whether the board can remove elected officials, specifically the L.A. sheriff. The Los Angeles Board of Supervisors voted to put an ordinance on the November ballot in an attempt to remove the Los Angeles County Sheriff, Alex Villanueva. The measure passed in a four-to-one vote with Supervisor Catherine Barger dissenting. Barger said in a statement, giving the Board of Supervisors the authority to remove an elected sheriff unequivocally takes away power from the public. She added, the measure overlooks the recall process for elected officials who fail to uphold their duties. If voters pass this legislation into law, it would allow officials to remove a sheriff by a four-fifths vote. The measure comes as the board has clashed several times with Villanueva. The disputes are over his law enforcement tactics and not requiring his deputies to be vaccinated against COVID-19. The board also imposed a hiring freeze on his department in February, while voting to terminate unvaccinated county employees. Villanueva said in a letter to the board that the motion is an effort to sabotage his election campaign. He also calls it a recipe for public corruption. Villanueva will go head-to-head with former Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna, who has been endorsed by all county supervisors in the general election. Billionaire George Soros. He says he's committed to promoting criminal justice reform. According to him, that's what the public wants. But is it really? 
Our reporter spoke with someone who's experiencing the impact of so-called bail reform every day. Billionaire George Soros is funding prosecutors who he considers to be pro-criminal justice reform, and he has no intention of stopping. That's what he said in an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal on Sunday. According to Soros, black people in the U.S. are five times as likely to be sent to jail as white people. He claims that criminal justice reform can change that. Soros also says trust between the community and police can be restored with criminal justice reform. It's not reform. You know, people don't want to reform when you hear this term. They want to let bad guys out on the street. They want it to look like a scene from Gotham. Joey Imperatrice is the founder of Blue Lives Matter NYC and an active sergeant with the NYPD. He says trust has not been restored after bail laws were changed in New York State three years ago. According to him, a revolving door has been opened instead, which often allows criminals right back onto the street after they commit an offense. He also says the changes to bail laws increased the number of people committing crimes. People that have not been caught before, that don't have a criminal history in their mind, they see their friends and the people in their gang running around the streets and knowing that if they get caught, they won't be prosecuted either. So now you have more people joining the bandwagon, which is making police officers' job that much more harder. So according to Imperatrice, what's the impact of New York's bail reform on its police force? How will it be affected in the long run? There's people leaving for other jobs, for other jurisdictions that treat them better, that have better pay. So it's not even the long term anymore. We're having this problem now. We're losing talented officers now. You know, we are probably down anywhere between four and 6,000 officers if not more, from the peak of, 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 I believe, 2001 or 2002. He added that prosecutors should allow judges to determine whether a suspect is dangerous and should thus stay behind bars. Right now, judges in New York can't assess whether a person is dangerous when determining bail, and they are required to choose the least restrictive way to make sure a suspect returns to court. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Kentucky's governor gave a grim update on Monday. He said floods unleashed by torrential rains in the eastern part of the state have killed at least 37 people, including four children. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. According to Governor Andy Bashir, Kentucky authorities continued to work to rescue residents this week and provide food and shelter for thousands who had been displaced. We was actually in bed and uh, we, my mom was still awake. She's watching the rain. Uh, within two hours, uh, the floodwaters up on her house. We evacuated with what just we had. We, uh, me and my two children, my nephews, uh, we just had the clothes on our back. The governor explained many residents had been unprepared for heavy downfall overnight, leading to more deaths. Bashir declared a state of emergency last week and said over the weekend that authorities would likely be finding bodies for weeks as teams fanned out to more remote areas. You know, so we went on to bed and we woke up the next morning. Our neighbors at the bottom of the hill, the water was up to the top of their back door and I could cover their whole trailer. And we were stuck in, we couldn't get off of her hill for like two days. Days of heavy rainfall caused some homes in the hardest hit areas to be swept away. The Wolfe County Search and Rescue Team published footage on Facebook of a helicopter lifting an 83-year-old woman from a roof of a home. The building was almost completely submerged. This was part of a five-person rescue. Just everybody think about the people that are still out there, you know, the ones that's been found every day, the ones that couldn't have been rescued, you know what I'm saying, think about them and their families. Because to us, the biggest thing for us was that we all got out and we're all here safe, you know. My mom's blind, so... That was the biggest thing for us is that we're safe and here together. The floods were the second major disaster to strike Kentucky in seven months, following a swarm of tornadoes that claimed nearly 80 lives in the western part of the state in December. President Joe Biden declared a major disaster in Kentucky on Friday, allowing federal funding to be allocated to the state. What we and our partners are doing at places like this is providing people a safe place to stay, food, water, emotional support. This is obviously so traumatic for them. Um, and, and just really comfort and hope. Uh, uh, somebody who's there, just letting them know that someone is there and for them and there to help. Power lines were widely damaged. According to Power Outage US, more than 8,000 households remained without power on Monday afternoon, but that was down from 15,000 on Monday morning. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
Hall of Fame broadcaster Vin Scully passed away yesterday at the age of 94. Scully called games for the Dodgers before retiring in 2016. Universally liked, Scully had a welcoming and familiar voice for those who tuned in. Hi everybody and a very pleasant good evening to you wherever you may be. Pull up a chair as the Dodgers have finally come home. I talked with author and professor Kurt Smith who wrote a book about Scully entitled Pull Up a Chair. Smith, who has written numerous books on baseball broadcasting, says Scully's place in the play-by-play -play community is unanimous. Every baseball broadcaster that I've ever spoken to, when I asked them the question, who's the best uh, baseball broadcaster of all time, all of them said in unison, Vince Scully. Smith said Scully was an inveterate reader who read books on politics and history just as much as baseball and brought that knowledge to the game and fans loved him for it. I mean, there was no segment of the population that, that did not appreciate, I think, what Vince Scully was and what he did. But I think, above all, it's the fact that, that, that his vocabulary and his, uh, his uh, study of, uh, of uh, literacy uh, became so evident during his game. Scully, who majored in literature at Fordham University, was eloquent with his descriptions, sometimes referring to twilight as little footsteps of sunshine. Smith said that was just the beginning. When a, a pitch eluded the catcher, Scully evoked the ancient mariner. He stoppeth one in three. Um, on a dribbler turn an infield hit, he quoted Eugene O'Neill. A humble thing but thine own. This is not the kind of language that you ordinarily hear. And he was able to utilize it without appearing condescending, looking down on people, or patronizing. That, that's, that, to me, is the definition of art. Scully had many great calls, but maybe his most famous was when a hobbling Kurt Gibson hit a miraculous game-winning home run in the 1988 World Series. But Smith said it was Scully doing something different this time that made it so memorable. He made the call. Then he got up and he went to the back of the booth so that he would not be tempted to over-talk and to, and to, and to distill in any sense and, 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 and weaken this extraordinary drama of that moment. So he, didn't, he did not intrude upon the drama, but rather he enhanced the drama. Scully then famously summarized the drama by saying, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. In golf news, Phil Mickelson is one of 11 live golfers filing an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. The golfers were previously suspended by the PGA Tour for playing in a live golf event. Three of the golfers are seeking a restraining order that will allow them to play in the upcoming FedEx Cup playoffs. The lawsuit calls the PGA suspensions unprecedented. The FedEx Cup playoffs start on August 8th, while Live Golf's next event is September 2nd in Boston. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the U.S. and Japan are working to stand up to what they describe as Beijing's economic coercion. And several key industries could benefit from the effort. Taiwan is preparing its air raid shelters as tensions rise with Beijing. That's as Russia's invasion of Ukraine raises new fears about the possibility of a Chinese attack. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. The United States is working with Japan to counter China's growing influence. That's according to comments from the U.S. ambassador to Japan. At the same time, Beijing is using its economic might to push for political change around the world. NTD's Chenny Wu has more. 
The U.S. diplomat to Japan says that economic cooperation between Washington and Tokyo is going strong, with one of its top priorities set as countering China. Japan and the United States were the number one foreign direct investor in each other's countries. Not one year, but two years consistently. Now, this year is not done, but I think we're in a real strong position. That's all I'll say. Ambassador Japan Rahm Emanuel called Beijing a top player of economic coercion, adding if Beijing doesn't like what you say politically, they put the muscles on you economically. He gave Japan as an example. The country saw Chinese shipments of rare earth metals blocked over a territorial dispute, while South Korea suffered Chinese business boycotts while it installed a U.S. missile defense system. The idea that they could actually honestly say, we don't coerce, and then you have not one, not two, not three, many worldwide examples where they've used their economic market access to force a political change in a country. And I think everybody's woken up to that. Emmanuel is pushing the U.S. to deepen economic cooperation with Japan to counter that economic coercion. Key collaboration areas include semiconductors, batteries and energy. Japan says it'll provide as much as $700 million to help U.S. firms boost memory chip output at a Japanese plant. American firms like Western Digital Corp and partner Kyoxia Holdings are set to benefit from the deal. Meanwhile, Japanese industrial conglomerate Panasonic picked Kansas as the site for a new battery plant. The deal came together after President Biden talked with Panasonic executives in Japan. And Taiwan is preparing its air raid shelters as tensions rise with Beijing. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine raises new fears about the possibility of a Chinese attack on the Democratic Island. Here's more. An emergency drill undertaken by regular people as though they were at war. Civilians in Taiwan have fresh fears of a Chinese attack due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as the island nation's own ongoing hostilities with Beijing. So Taiwanese authorities are pushing another precaution, regularly prepping their air raid shelters. Not purpose-built bunkers, but safe places in subways, underground shopping centers and car parks and so on. The locations are put in a smartphone app and on posters, and a social media campaign is to get people ready. Wu Enoch is a politician with Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. Almost everyone has a, has a basement in their building. It doesn't matter if they're categorized as an official shelter. What's important is to know what you need to bring with you, what's currently there, uh, and for you, to be, um, for you to be able to stay there for a long period of time. For example, a lot of shelters don't have bathrooms. And we need, we're training our students, we're training our participants to understand that when you go to a bare bones place, how do you improvise? How do you use what you have? And if you have a little bit more preparation, how do you uh, prepare your grab-and-go bag so that once you're there, you have the medical supplies to help people, you have the tools you need to build a makeshift toilet, you know how to separate where you eat and where you use the bathroom. I think these are very useful skills that we're uh, trying to teach our participants. Beijing considers Taiwan its territory and has increased military activity in the air and seas around it. Some civil defense advocates believe more needs to be done. For example, shelters are required by law to be kept clean and open, but they aren't required to be stockpiled with food and water. The capital of Taipei has 4,600 shelters with enough space to accommodate 12 million people. That's over four times its population. Drones play an important role in the war in Ukraine. They can monitor the enemy's actions, saving military and civilian lives, and even drop targeted bombs. Ukraine recently bought dozens of drones with millions of pounds of donations from international countries and individuals. NTD's Joey Dugut has more. Ukraine displayed some recently purchased drones at an airport on the outskirts of Kiev on Tuesday, ahead of their deployment to the front line. These reconnaissance drones are used to survey an area to locate the enemy or help to plot strategic features. Never in the history of warfare have drones been used as intensively as in Ukraine, where they often play an outsized role in who lives and who dies. A manned aerial vehicle has cost incomparably less than the cost of human lives. 
Thanks to unmanned aerial vehicles, we can do such reconnaissance, which would otherwise have resulted in human losses. Kiev said the drones were bought after they received about £16 million donation from 74 countries. Some children even donated their own toy drones to help the Ukrainian armed forces. The funding has also been used to train pilots. An estimated 400 have now graduated after two months of training. A serviceman said without drones to help pinpoint targets, high-precision weapons would be less effective. High-precision weapons are nice, but to aim these high-precision weapons, we need intelligence tools. We really need intelligence tools such as drones. Russian and Ukrainian troops alike depend heavily on unmanned aerial vehicles to pinpoint enemy positions and guide their artillery strikes. But after months of fighting, the drone fleets of both sides are depleted. Their demand for off-the-shelf consumer models remains intense in Ukraine, as do efforts to modify amateur drones to make them more resistant to jamming. The biggest problem for small drones is electronic warfare systems. So we require thousands of them. They do get shot down. They fly at high altitudes and fall all the time, so we need thousands of them to support our army. The Russian stock of long-range military drones exceeds Ukraine's, but Kremlin supplies are also diminished. Russian troops also fly a lot of off-the-shelf quadcopters, often supplied by soldiers' relatives and volunteers. Joy Dugid, NTD News. Coming up, the James Webb Space Telescope captures a stunning image of a galaxy that's 500 million light-years away. We take a closer look after this short break. The Webb Space Telescope seems to be the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to mind-boggling deep space images, and its latest look is no different. A newly released image shows the Cartwheel Galaxy, a rare ring galaxy located 500 million light-years away. Thanks to the power of the new Webb Telescope, scientists have been able to glean new insights and info about the galaxy's makeup and its evolution. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.